2: Hi, Movie Truth. is just a little note for me at the top of the episode. So we recorded this first thing on Wednesday. Part of our discussion involves the London Film Festival and talking about access when it comes generally to festivals, to some of the things that were out there about the London Film Festival at the time. Since then, there has been some amendments and some clarifications from the London Film Festival that have been very reassuring. But I still think some of the issues we talk about are very relevant So yes, please, if you want to know about pricing and everything that's going on with the London Film Festival, you can check out their website for up-to-date information and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Laura Vanning, And I'm Caitlin Quinlan. On the show this week, a group of teens make some terrible mistakes in Talk to Me. A relationship is tested in You Hurt My Feelings, and I got to talk to the film's director, the incredible Nicole Holofcener. And at the film club, we still didn't have enough Holofcener in our lives, so we returned to her debut, Walking and Talking. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So... Laura Caitlin, welcome back to the podcast. And Laura, a rare appearance where you're not talking about a Chris Pratt movie. It it seems a shame. I really hate that this has become a running theme. This sounds like I badger
3: you every week with requests. Please let me on to talk about this man. So uh, (laughs) I'm somewhat relieved to have broken this. Pattern finally.
2: <laughs> well, you know, yeah, no, it's very much uh, me being mean by making you <laughs> making you do those weeks. Caitlin, what about you? What have you been up to in this uh, desert of Chris Pratt content that we have been finding ourselves? Have you found anything
0: interesting out there? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, what a tragedy that we uh, can't have too many uh, Chris Pratt movies. No, um, yeah, I've been doing a couple of European festivals. That's been my sort of workload at the minute. So I was recently in Carnevale. Uh, for the film festival there which was very fun Um, and looking forward to going to both Locarno and Edinburgh over August so I'll be hopping around (laughs) watching uh a Independent movies. <laughs>
2: oh, excellent! I'm going to be in Edinburgh too. It's my first one, which is very exciting. I've, I've done the Fringe many times, but yeah, no, this is going to be my first film festival. And like Edinburgh in August, what's better than that?
0: Yes, my first time there too for the for the festival. I've been many times as a just to be in the city, but um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. and
2: Then we have a slightly more controversial festival um, coming up afterwards, LFF, um, which you know, something as Londoners is something quite easy for us to access most years and. Has normally got some great Films with some great people there, but some
0: um, bad news came out about it. Does anyone want to like take this bat on? Uh, yes. So uh, it was kind of recently shared around on Twitter by friend of Little White Lies, Michael Leader, that LFF have quite drastically hiked their press accreditation and other badge prices for the festival this year. I mean, it was already a fairly expensive press badge as t- in terms of festivals go. Not the only festival to charge for that, but definitely a higher price of uh some of the major european festivals. And now I mean for me personally it's beyond being affordable in no sense of the word is it affordable and I think it's you know absolutely going to price out any number of critics especially those from lower income backgrounds who already struggle to you know have work in this industry which is you know unfortunately much more accessible to those with you know independent wealth. So it's it's really uh, a shame and very embarrassing I think frankly that LFF have even taken this step and and, and done this. Um, they're not a festival with, you know, many world premieres that could even come close to justifying the price that they are suggesting. You know, Berlin, for example, has far, far more premieres and, and major, major film releases and they don't charge it, you know, anywhere near that. Same with Cannes. So it's just a bit of a ridiculous situation and hopefully they're going to do something about it and rectify it since this sort of outcry. But um, yeah, gosh, what a what a failing honestly
2: yeah it, it's really depressing i mean I know every festival is different and has different budgets and london is an incredibly expensive city to run a festival in but i think i paid 50 euros for my venice accreditation and that gives you subsidized food all of your transport is free you get to go to all of the biennale for free and like they do try and like make it work your time and like that is actually a festival that despite obviously that being an expensive city too one that can kind of make a profit on but this this was very disturbing to me because one of the things that you was those a kind of tier of press that was even more expensive that gave you i believe weekend and evening screenings and a lot of people have to fit this around day jobs so like they're also being asked to pay even more when they're the kind of most overstretched people in our entire industry Absolutely.
3: And, you know, I've used virtually all my
2: annual leave
3: this year and my day job on festivals. So I really, I really feel for those people. And it does seem to, you know, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not the intention, but it will exclude those who are trying to break into this industry. It will absolutely exclude those people. And it's it's such a
2: shame. And I really hope they reconsider. Yeah, well, I mean, social media, not known for the place that from which good things happen, but maybe this time. So, yeah, we can get a move on to some more horrors of the world. Uh, first up, it's Talk to Me. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member, who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady AQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. When a group of friends discover how to conjure spirits using an embalmed hand, they become hooked on the new thrill, until one of them goes too far and unleashes terrifying supernatural forces. So Laura, this is kind of the big Sundance horror hit. There tends to be like one every year that has people talking. And this was just the one that people found like shocking and gross and really fun. I mean, were you kind of similarly enthused?
3: Yeah, I definitely was while it was <laughs> while it was happening. I'm not sure if it really leaves much of an impact once it's once it's gone. But it, in that it's very visceral and very gripping and yeah, suitably gross. And it's been such a long time since I saw a horror film on the big screen that really felt like it had its, you know, its audience in the palm of its hand. That that wasn't even deliberate. That was just <laughs> where I was going with that sentence anyway. Yeah, I had to cover my eyes several times. Um, and, you know, I can be a little wimpy i normally like to watch horror in the comfort of my own in my own home with the lights on but uh but this really uh it really it really did viscerally frighten me although like i say i i, I don't think i think once seen it it slips out of your mind quicker than uh than it intends to yeah
2: Yeah, I mean, it does have some of those sort of classic contemporary horror tropes. There's stuff about trauma, our kind of central character is grieving her mother and in some way this kind of path to conjure spirits. She wants to connect with her again. But I don't know, for me, Caitlin, it felt fresh in a way that like a lot of the recent fair hasn't.
0: Yeah, I think it's a film with a really weird sense of humour, which is strange to say for a horror film, but it has these moments which are equal parts gross and quite funny, actually. Um, There's a a sort of moment with a dog and then a sort of foot fetish moment as well. And these things are kind of so ridiculous within the, the sphere of horror that they are funny and they are amusing. And I think there's something that makes the film feel slightly more original and fresh, but I do agree, and I did have a problem with this—that the kind of grief as allegory idea is so overplayed in the horror genre, um, you know, at the minute and and you know throughout throughout a kind of broader history of it. And I and I find that it it makes for quite lazy filmmaking in some ways. I think there are a lot of things in this film where. I think the beginning is really strong and I think the ending is absolutely perfect. But I think within the middle, there's a lack of kind of coherence and some elements of plot just become quite muddled. And I think they rely very heavily on this well, she's grieving, and you're supposed to, you know, that that's supposed to carry much of the kind of character intention and motivation, and 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 plot decisions, and and how the action moves forward. And I think it's just becoming a little bit, yeah, a little bit lazy or a little bit just too easy to to kind of fall into that and use that as the as the reasoning for everything. I think that was my kind of biggest problem with the film, and I I, I wanted there to be more of that originality and something a bit a bit fresher um, within the actual content of the of the kind of horror itself I, I mean that being said i was fairly scared <laughs> and um did let out a sort of audible like oh no at one point and and you know and and that's great and and as laura says i think visceral is a very good word for it it, it really does feel yeah feel very scary in, in that sense but i think in terms of narrative it's it's lacking a little bit for me i totally agree yeah there is that kind of
2: other thread to it, i suppose of like they are sort of seeking social media clout maybe that's convincing because like i don't know that even that attention would be in any way positive like i mean they are like doing incredibly disgusting things and like fully humiliating themselves for clicks at times
3: yeah, I mean, I was reading that these these brothers, this directing duo, Danny and Michael uh, Filippo, who are YouTubers and not really my scene. I'd never heard of them, but it turns out they are massive on YouTube. They've got like a, over a billion views on all of their videos. Um, and they say that they were inspired by seeing a video of someone who had, I'm not sure what kind of drug they'd taken, but was having some kind of seizure or bad experience on drugs. And that this, I don't know if it was sort of went viral or whether it was just shared among their friend group. So having knowing this going in, I sort of thought the implications of the internet and kind of TikTok challenges that are dangerous and extreme content being posted online and shared and the pressure to always be more extreme and be be bigger and bolder might have something more to do with the actual plot. But it really didn't. Aside from there's a really brilliant prologue sort of opening sequence with with some teenagers at a party. At one point, All the teenagers get their phones out to film something very horrible happening. Someone apparently having some kind of psychotic break. And that character's brother shouts at them all and says, you know, put your phones away. Why are you filming this? Why are you filming this? And I was like, oh, yeah, that is interesting. And maybe this is going to be a continuing through line, but it's just sort of dropped as an idea which I think is a shame in favor of let's do the grief thing again, like as Caitlin says, it's just it's been done to death and yeah, it's a shortcut and it's and it's really lazy. Yeah, I totally agree.
2: Yeah, massively. It it did make me feel slightly guilty about like the time I went down a real rabbit hole about fifteen years ago watching videos of people taking salvia and trying to garden. (laughs) <laughs> like, end- endlessly <laughs> fascinating an entirely legal substance i would add i was not uh supporting any anything dodgy just ethically dubious i suppose um but uh Caitlin, you mentioned that you felt like the ending was like almost like the strongest part of
0: it like i mean spoiler free can you say why that worked for you I think it seems like they had the ending very much understood from the beginning. I think there's something about the concept of of this hand that they hold on to and they They speak to and and that's kind of how the demon appears or the spirit appears and i think it's quite clear that that they knew what the ending was going to be from the very beginning which is not always the case for filmmakers i would say and maybe that sounds like an obvious thing to to comment on but i do think that it it leads it builds to a very satisfying finish and one that is very kind of chilling in a way and but also quite sort of uh i mean it's slightly cheeky there's something about it that's kind of playful in it in, in itself but i think it just rounds off it it does also kind of give them a let off because it rounds the film off in this quite simple and like neat way that is very satisfying at the moment that it happens. But I do think when you start to unpick what's led the character there, this is a character Mia played by Sophie Wilde, who I think is is pretty good in this. I think there's some dodgy performances in this, but I think she's she's quite good. It, yeah, what what leads what leads Mia to, to this point of the finale? I'm still not even entirely sure what really happens there. I think there's some kind of convoluted plotting that sort of muddles over a couple of different storylines about what this spirit wants from her and what the spirits generally want in their kind of underworld where they've kind of got another character held hostage. And there's a lot of kind of this strange, yeah, as I say, crossing over between those two narratives and how one can help the other. But they just both seem quite (laughs) vague and slightly underdeveloped. And so, yeah, when the ending comes, I think it does give this sort of satisfying, oh, that's quite a you know, a neat trick. But it, it does also maybe paper over some of the cracks in um, the logic of other things going on in the film. Mm-hmm.
2: Laura, for you as well, do you kind of find yourself picking apart some kind of plot holes and stuff?
3: Totally, yeah. I had no idea what the internal rules of the hand were the hand world the logic who are these spirits quite what they're doing I was a bit like well also one quick side note is that I know this has been written about and I think there was a, a good piece on the Little White Lies website about this a while ago is can we can we stop demonising like literally demonising in this case old women like can we stop with that because it's always sort of sexualized but sort of made overtly disgusting you know it, it's sort of like the worst thing that these mainly young male filmmakers can think of can imagine is like the corpse of a naked old woman and I'm just I'm I don't even watch that many of these films and I feel like I've seen it enough I'm fed up with it and I, I really don't like it and I was disappointed to see that in this because it's so unoriginal and it's just cruel I think
2: yeah, it does it does seem a shame in a way that even though there were kind of sparks of originality and like loads of things about this I really enjoyed that yeah, we did kind of fall back onto like, oh, it's like the old lady from Wreck and it <laughs> and like, oh, she's sad and she hasn't come to terms with her grief and maybe maybe therapy? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, certainly one that I think the horror fans are going to enjoy. I, I had a really good time with it. Um, I'd quite like to see it in the cinema. I, I did do the Sundance laptop, all the lights on, so I think I got to kind of escape from some of the more disgusting moments. But I was still, thought it was gnarly and scary and really fun. So, scores. Let's get some scores on this. Laura, do you want to go first? In anticipation, in enjoyment, and in retrospect.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, I love... Australian films in general. I think Australia is just one of them one of the most exciting film scenes around the world and Australian horror. I'm big into it. So I was really looking forward to this. So I'd say a four in anticipation, probably a four in enjoyment, even though, even as I was experiencing it and noticing some plot wobbles, I was just having such a, yeah, uh, intense, visceral, good time. And then probably a three in retrospect, maybe even bordering on a, no, no, I'll stick with three. I'll stick with three. It's really good fun and it really plays well to a crowd. But probably doesn't really stand up. Uh yeah, once you gain that distance from it for me. Mm, very fair enough. Caitlin, what about you?
0: Yeah, I think I, I'm always interested in the sort of buzzy quite it was quite hyped uh, you know well, it is quite a hyped film uh out of Sundance so I'm always curious to see how those things hold up but but also go into it with a sort of measure of uh yeah some reservations let's say so I think I, in anticipation was probably about a three um I didn't want to be disappointed <laughs> by what everyone was saying so yeah probably about a three I was trying to be quite measured and then as well despite what I've said on this podcast I did have a good time with it I did enjoy it and I did find it scary and, and I think it will as Laura says play very well to, to an audience in, in cinemas and people will be talking about it um i would also give it a four for enjoyment and a throw back to a three again for in retrospect because i just think as soon as i left i was like that was a good time but i didn't really you know this happened or it relied on this and you know all these things that we've been chatting about i think they just kind of came flooding to the fore as soon as i left the screen which is a shame but but yeah in the moment i think it's it is a really fun time um and and does have a lot of good scares so yeah three four three for me
2: uh, yeah, I think I'm about the same, three, four, three. I mean, I I watched a lot of Sundance horrors at this time, and if you thought this was kind of an overall intergenerational trauma film, my God, you. Managed to miss some like absolute doozies. Half of those movies just felt like the Babadook, written by AI. Uh, so this was very refreshing. So I was like at a five for enjoyment, just being like, wow, look, they made a horror movie that's actually scary. How exciting! But then yeah, back down to a three. It's <laughs> it's it's really fun, but it's not doing anything revolutionary for the genre like a you know Blair Witch Project or a Get Out, like those Sundance horrors did. But yeah, next up we've got another Sundance Darling. It's Nicole Holofsener's You Hurt My Feelings. <laughs> Beth is a writer following up her reasonably well-received memoir with a novel. Her long-standing and seemingly perfect marriage to therapist Don is suddenly turned upside down when she overhears his honest reaction to her latest book. But before we get into the film, before the strikes happened, I got to talk to one of my favourite filmmakers about her latest film. So lovely to meet you too. I'm a big, big fan, so this is really
1: exciting for me. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: I mean, I was, I was a fan of yours, before, you know, before watching your earlier films, and I think something happened with enough said where I kind
1: of turned into super standom. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Rabid fan. That's good. But um, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me today.
2: Absolute pleasure. I mean, I was thinking a little bit about, Enough said when you know when I was watching this the second time because I guess putting it out into the world to have it judged is something you're very familiar with. When you're kind of doing something where it's going to be someone's uh, final role, does that become more important? Like that, how that people like it feels more important.
1: Yeah, I did. I felt very protective of Jim. You know, and when he was nominated for a couple of things and didn't win, and then he wasn't nominated for a couple of things, and I felt, hey, come on, man. You know, yes, he's gone, and he won't get to enjoy that, but let's honor him a little. And I I thought his performance was so good that, um, yeah, I did feel a little loyalty would go a long way in terms of that. Not that prizes really mean anything, but, it, you know, he didn't get to see the movie, and that that was sad for me. I don't think he was going to watch it anyway. But I wanted him to know, you know, the good reviews and the love that people had for the movie and for him in it. At the time, I was just astounded by that you got this other side out of him. I kind of wanted to
2: start by asking you about the aesthetic, because I was so kind of like drawn in by how elegantly lit and framed the images were. I mean, how would you describe the sort of visual
1: language you were going for? You know, I mean, literally, we just wanted to put the camera at the right place, in the right place, at the right angle for each scene. And it was very intuitive. You know, Jeffrey Waldron and I would just talk about, hey, here's the space. We've been in it before. You know, we would prepare to some degree and just talk about the shots. There wasn't any kind of magical plan, which, I, you know, I've had more specific plans for different films But this one was just, you know, let's show New York. Let's put the camera where it should be and make it look beautiful (laughs) and realistic. And that was pretty much it. I can't, you know, I I can't say much more than that.
2: I mean, is that how you generally describe your approach to these things, that it's very intuitive?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because it's also not a movie, you know, it's a movie about people talking. And going through things, so I want it to feel intimate. I don't want the audience to be distracted by, wow, that's a cool shot, or wow, that's a cool angle. Um, That's not what I'm going for. I mean, I just, I want people to be focused on what's going on with, with the characters, and I want the angles and the lighting to reflect what's going on with the characters. Yeah. I mean, I I guess
2: because I've got to watch it like several times now at this point where it is like upon repeat, it's more you pick out those details and you have a moment about like, oh, I have been starved of a
1: beautifully lit (laughs) shot. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah. He's really talented um, and very collaborative.
2: With Julia and Michaela being in your films, like to me, it kind of seems like a no brainer is the three of you, like almost broadly, have, seem to have a kind of similar sensibility in your like wider filmographies outside of, you know, the, the stuff
1: you've done together. I mean, like, how was it reuniting with them? Well, great. I mean, the scene that Michaela was in in Enough Said had to be cut out because it was shot in a very confusing way. Mm. So we had to act exit. And I, you know, I'd worked with her before and wanted to do it again. And she suggested they play sisters. And it was a great idea. So when we all came together, just, yeah, it felt like family, mutual trust, respect. It was a no-brainer. We had a lot of fun. And the two of them improvising together or just acting together. You know, their chemistry was so good. Yeah, I got some good women in there. I mean, with her
2: being cut out of uh, previously, like, was there a little bit of level of trust to rebuild? Being like,
1: I promise you'll make it into the final movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I probably joked. Oh, sorry. All your scenes are gone. Yeah, she trusted me. And the part was too big to cut out. She was in. You talked about like liking kind
2: of collaborative people. I mean, did you have a strong sense of who these characters were from the beginning or was that a collaborative process as well, figuring out exactly who Julia was going to be playing and who Tobias was going to be playing?
1: Mm, I mean, when I write it, I do know who these people are. I knew Julia was going to be in it. Um, I didn't know Tobias or Michaela or any of the other characters would be in it when I was writing it, but... I know who these people are, like the back of my hand, you know. And, you know, when they when they came on board, I felt like they knew the characters really well too and didn't ask for backstory or, you know, motivation for certain things. It seemed very clear to them who they were and what they were going to play. There's always collaboration. I mean, we're reading a scene, you know, in my house or on Zoom or whatever before we're shooting in talking about, you know, how to play a certain thing or why I've written this or can they change that? And it helps them, I guess, to own the characters, to take them away from me and have them be, you know, the captain of their own ships. (laughs) Um, I mean, the writing of it is
2: so beautiful. I do like that you do not actually fully establish how talented she is. I mean, that sort of title of the memoir, I had to tell it kind of hints that she's not like this incredible wordsmith, but like, how do you
1: kind of view <laughs> her skills? It's just, you know, I see an opportunity for a joke and I just got to take yeah. it. Yeah. And, and you know, the scene where um, the students haven't read her book and that one actor, she and that actor just started um, improvising with the, I had to tell it. You had to tell, I had to tell it. And it just, it was like a delicious um extrapolation from an already funny book title so i was thrilled you know that kind of stuff is is our gems and you've also got this um you know within
2: tobias's working well um you've got this nightmare couple played by the real life couple of david cross and amber tamblin how is it directing people in a relationship to say such cruel
1: things to one another I didn't have to do much. (laughs) I think they sat down and just went at it. I think, you know, especially because they were a couple, it was really fun for them to play off of each other. I mean, they stuck to the script, but there was definitely some ad-libbing going on, um, especially when you have such funny people. I mean, David Cross is so hilarious and Amber as well. I think, um, I don't know, of course we joked about, you know, you know, just use your terrible relationship <laughs> for the movie. It wasn't hard. It wasn't hard. I mean, they're good actors.
2: The, the specific jobs of the characters, you know, writer, therapist and actor, seem to speak so deeply to their, their identity. Whilst, you, you know, your interior designer character has a bit of boundaries with work. but do you, So do you kind of view it as toxic, as how intensely your kind of writer, therapist and actor, they, they, they centralize their
1: work to kind of their entire identity? Mm -hmm. I suppose it is toxic, but very normal. I think anybody, especially a creative person, connects with their work in a, a, you know, an enormous way. And it can be dangerous to our sense of identity when, you know, if we're not working or if someone doesn't like our work, um, it's like a, you know, on a wave all the time. And I know for me, I wish... I didn't attach myself so closely to my work. I mean, I love writing about my own life, and I love writing what's really curious for to me and interesting to me. But boy, no matter how many movies I make or how old I get, it's still really um is hard when someone doesn't like my work, and I feel like I should be over that by now, but ha 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 <laughs> so yeah, it's unfortunate. But, you know, I feel like very normal and I'm willing to go through it, obviously, because I'm going to get good reviews and bad reviews and people who like my work and don't. And I don't want to stop doing it. So I guess I can handle it enough. Well enough. Yeah, I always slightly
2: um, loath to kind of ask female filmmakers about like how this everything personally connects to them, because I do feel that there is sometimes something that happens with critics and film journalists if we assume that everything's autobiographical when it comes from women I mean but for you this is personal this is kind of your life a little
1: absolutely I mean all my films are are large chunks of me and um I mean the Julia's character is certainly based on my wondering what this would be like for me if this happened to me this what if and um like you know I don't want to pretend it's not but I feel like yeah, I mean I take things in my life, I take questions that interest me in my life and characters that I know or they're amalgamations of people I know. And yeah, it's not a feminine thing, it's just a writer thing. And yeah, nobody should be using the word female anymore mm-hmm. with anything, right? Female filmmaker, female writer, female journalist. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's um, right. It's so
2: tiresome, isn't it? It's bizarre that it's ever considered novel in 2023, but yet here we are.
1: I still get asked to be on female panels and, and I do feel like, you know, we got to stop this labeling if we're going to move past it until they call them, you know, male filmmaker panels. Then it's not even, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it is very depressing that um that's still kind of a dialogue that you are having to enter into, but... I suppose you do write such rich characters, particularly for like old women, mothers, and kind of see them in this very three dimensional way. So it is it's refreshing, I suppose,
1: and notable, but Mm -hmm. sad that it's notable and refreshing. Mm -hmm. I know. And but there's plenty of guys that are making, you know, very rich characters about parenting and relationships and love and hurt. So it's not just uh, relegated to us women. But I think I was really
2: fascinated by this kind of specter of the father that exists, like particularly for Beth, that she sort of, she had this verbal abuse as a child. And then she's in this marriage with this like highly emotionally intelligent man, but then also career defined by the memoir that's about the abuse. So it's like two ends of the spectrum, I guess. Like she kind of married her father and married the opposite of
1: her father at the same Uh time. Don't we all? (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess because of her father relationship with her father, she's definitely on high alert for criticism mm-hmm. and you now is her worst critic herself. But I do feel like uh sometimes I find myself thinking, Did I marry my father? Am I dating my father? Or the opposite of my father? It's like it all absolutely that kind of um connection with who be who we become, the connection with our parents and who we become is very interesting to me and what we what we respond to in our lives even after our parents are gone what still triggers us right and definitely if she hadn't had a verbally abusive father she might have been able to handle this better but i think hearing it sort of unconsciously confirms her worst fear is that she's stupid or she has shit for brains and she sort of as his- pivoted to
2: the other end of the spectrum I suppose with her son Elliot who she's kind of you know so encouraging of I mean how did you kind of view their dynamic is it just a case of trying to do the opposite of my father
1: it was it was that and I but I also feel like it's a cultural phenomenon this over praising our children and helicopter parenting and I think maybe we've swung back. Like I actually just talked to some mothers of younger kids, and they're saying, "Well, now, now they're telling us it's not so good to overpraise, and it's not, you know, don't tell your kids they're magic, you know, um, and can do everything they want." So I think, you know, I I skipped that part of the zeitgeist, but I th- and I think people are parents are confused about it. But I just love the idea that you can fuck up a kid by telling them how great they are, and that parents just can't win. You know, I mean, I have two sons and, um, you know, I, the the mistakes that I've made, the mistakes they tell me I've made are always so surprising. It was like, what you didn't like when I said you were great, you know, or, you know, a variety of mistakes that they let me know I've made. You just, you can't win. And that's kind of also in the story. Yeah, I mean, I was making notes for my uh,
2: four-year-old and six-year-old, being just like, okay, don't, don't, don't overcorrect. Here. Um, but with you, like when you were younger, did you have that kind of level of encouragement? Do you have anyone that was kind of saw your talent and your abilities and 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 encouraged you into this kind of path of writing and, and directing?
1: Yeah, I mean, my parents were. Really encouraging, and they were creative people. So it didn't seem crazy that I wanted to pursue something artistic. You know, yeah, I, my mom is very critical and also very supportive, just like, you know, the relationship in the movie. I can't say the only time I felt that I was really overpraised was when I was applying to colleges, and my mother told me I was a brilliant artist, painter, painter. I would draw. And she was like, oh, you're incredibly talented. And maybe I was when I was 16, you know, for being 16. But uh, yeah, she thought I was a genius. And I went to art school and I just, you know, fell flat. It was like, what was she thinking? How did she convince me I could do what these other art students are doing, which were so much better than what I was doing? So that time, but since then and with my filmmaking, um, no, she's a critical eye and she'll be honest with me sometimes too honest or too critical but always supportive yeah not overly so i don't think but thank you um so much for your time i really appreciate it Um, my pleasure nice to meet you thanks
2: everyone knows
3: therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too
2: So Caitlin, I mean, this is kind of the ultimate in low stakes fare. <laughs> like just just a film about having your feelings hurt a bit. I mean, did you find that
0: a kind of compelling narrative? Yes, absolutely. And maybe that speaks volumes about me and <laughs> me as a writer as well. But I, I think Nicole Holofsen is is a wonderful filmmaker and she's so... Uh, adept at weaving in to quite sort of mundane and silly situations, these narratives which have a kind of a gravitas, but at the same time are slightly ridiculous. Like I think her marriage of kind of the the sort of dramatic and the serious with um, the everyday is is one of the things that makes her her film so. So kind of compelling, but also so warm and very human. Um, and I think she's really, uh, yeah, she's really able to capture those kinds of environments and these kinds of characters with a real sincerity, but but also a self awareness. And I think that's what is so works so well in, in this film because you know you've got you've got Beth and Don, played respectively by Julia Louis Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies, and yeah, Beth is a writer and she overhears her husband say that he doesn't like her latest manuscript, which is totally devastating. For her she's built her entire life on being a writer on being good at being a writer and she teaches and you know maybe she's got a slightly inflated sense of her skill and her purpose but obviously she doesn't need to hear that from her husband (laughs) that's you know the worst possible thing that that could happen to her and so you know it, it is quite it's quite high stakes in that respect actually you know the the fact that that this throws their marriage into total disarray because of the years of trust they've had and 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 how quickly it's been shattered under this um you know in this moment, so I think I think Ho of Center is just so um yes yeah, so has such a keen eye for these kinds of character dynamics. she has so many little moments that you just feel are, must be taken from real life and from real scenarios um but she's never precious about these things she can she can really skewer these people at the same time she can be very kind of mocking in a in a gentle way um because this is her world this is her milieu and I think she's you know, yeah, she's just really able to get under its skin and that's what makes these films so well, you hurt my feelings in, in this instance such a such a delight.
2: Yeah, I, I I'm with you. I found it utterly charming. Um, even down to like the kind of most characters that you quite dislike, you know, uh Don as a therapist, he's got a lot of like really hideous clients who he's kind of also not able to share his true opinions with. And yeah, I think it just kind of gets that sort of tension of like responsibility and kindness, and what is like toxic kindness <laughs> um, that really doesn't help anyone. I mean, Laura, for you, did you come into this as a Hall of Senna fan, or, or if not, were you converted?
3: I confess, I'm so sorry. Before this week, I had never seen any of her films or at least any of her directed films. I had seen, you know, I think the last screenplay she worked on was The Last Duel. And I'd obviously had seen uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which she also wrote. So uh, I actually watched our uh, film club choice this week first and then this, and oh my gosh, I'm so converted. I adored both of them. This this film, You Hurt My Feelings, I just loved it. I thought it was just quietly, so layered and kind of deceptively complex emotionally without ever yeah losing that charm and spark and very very funny sharp dialogue but also feels so real I feel like I've met these people I feel like I know them and what particularly interested me was the really careful but very yeah very perceptive very astute observations about our relationships with our parents and with and with children and I think in a different filmmaker's hands it would have been a quite sort of ham-fisted portrayal of like "Quote unquote intergenerational trauma," but in this film, it's so delicate and melancholy and sharp, and I just love. You know, she's got this relationship with her with her sister, who is just wonderful. Um, her sister's uh, Sarah, played by Michaela Watkins, who I just adored. Who's also struggling with her own sense of what am I doing? I, I'm an interior designer, and I spend my life looking at overpriced light bulbs while the light light fixtures while the world falls apart um, and then she's got her relationship with her mother who's this quite brittle quite difficult person and her, her successful memoir was about verbal abuse by her father as a child and, and then what has she taken about these experiences and the way she behaves towards her son in his early 20s who's really just trying to find his way in the world as a 23 year old and god that's just the worst time worst time of your life and figuring out who you are and I just thought that was also beautifully observed and yeah it doesn't really damn anyone or accuse anyone of anything exactly it's just uh yeah i just thought it was so delicately and
0: beautifully explored without putting a kind of finger of accusation at anyone what what you say about the um the the sort of nature of like figuring out who you are i think in this film in particular the way that it deals with work as a subject is so interesting and, you know, each of these characters is, is kind of having a work based crisis among other things. But so, yeah, there's sort of these, these subplots for each, each character alongside Beth and her husband is worried he's not a good enough therapist her sister's worried she's not a good enough interior designer and her brother-in-law thinks he's not a good enough actor and so there are these kind of very yeah, career-based kind of woes and crises and and I've been thinking about the film a lot since I saw it in, in Sundance back in January and I remember at the time really feeling it resonate alongside um, uh, Kelly Reichart's showing up which is a, a, another film that well hopefully we will get in the UK sometime soon, my favourite filmmaker <laughs> absolutely but It's a really interesting film about what it means to interrogate your relationship to work and how you feel as a person in relationship to the work that you do and how, you know, (laughs) under capitalism, we are all, you know, subjected to this, this, uh, this experience and and these problems. Um, But, but, you know, both films kind of explore this idea of learning to be your own person without the work that you do. And I think, uh, yeah, I think that, that that's a really interesting subject for sort of a contemporary film to be, to be making.
2: Yeah, and I, I and I like that it doesn't too heavily establish whether or not any of these people are that good at their jobs. But so that's kind of much of a muchness. The point is is that it's kind of taken up way too much of their identity, and there's no way to kind of define themselves or even define their relationships with each other without needing that outward success, needing kind of like outward praise. But I found that so particularly funny uh, with Ariane Moed's character, who's playing the kind of actor who who is naturally, I suppose, got the the most fragile ego.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I think it just really beautifully examines or questions the idea of meaningful work and a meaningful life. What does that really mean to anybody? it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently personally so this really this really touched something for me yeah on a very personal level yeah maybe it's maybe it speaks volumes that there are three writers here who uh, really (laughs)
2: love love this film yeah (laughs) well what's the old phrase find a job you love and you'll set no personal boundaries and take all rejection incredibly personally (laughs) But yeah, let's get some scores on this. Uh, Caitlin, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect?
0: Yeah, I think I'm fours across the board uh, for this one. I, as I say, you know, big fan of of Nicole Holofsen and to be honest, of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. So anything with her. And I was I was definitely um, down for and then yeah just had such a wonderful time watching it and thinking about it afterwards and you know just letting it kind of sit sit with me and you know over these last few months and it still feels like a film I'll return to and and really kind of cherish and in, in that in that way um so yeah i'm a, it's kind of strong strong fours I think not not a five just because it's i don't know it's not necessarily a film that like demands uh much and I think it's quite a sort of easy space to enter into and there's not so many challenges or kind of I don't know I don't know what it would have to do to be a five star film for me but it's it just I, I mean it's not that it's not on that sort of level and it shouldn't be on that level which I um, which I appreciate yeah
2: I mean the rule that I was given is that you can only give something a five if you can feel that it genuinely changed your life
0: so. yeah I don't think it changed my life but I don't want that to to, to mean that it's anything less than very very good
3: <laughs>
2: uh Laura what about you
3: yeah, I think straight fours as well. Like I said, I, um, until, until this week, I wasn't really that familiar with Nicole Senna's work. But I also, gosh, we barely talked about her, but I also just love Julia Louis-Dreyfus. To my shame, I've never seen Seinfeld, but I, for years, me and my dad have been watching Veep on DVD. Every time a new season came out I would get it for him for birthday or Christmas and we'd watch it. And uh I just love her. Um she's so brittle and so funny and vulnerable. Um so I knew going in that I that I would have a, a good time and uh and yeah as I say I'm now I'm now a convert. I can't wait to
2: dive into her entire filmography. It's such fun times ahead. One of the few people that I'm happy is a billionaire. there's a surprising number about of them in comedy. I'll t i have a list, I'll share them with you afterwards. But like yes our <laughs> finest Nepo <laughs> baby Julie Louis Drive one of the great comic actresses of all time just yeah fours across the board for me um but she she's a five she she's changed my life next up it's walking and talking just as amelia thinks she's over her anxiety and insecurity her best friend announces her engagement bringing her anxiety and insecurity right back so this is Nicole Holifsen's debut. And the first time she teams up with Kathry Keener, who becomes like a long-term collaborator of hers. Laura, did you see kind of the seeds of like the great indie filmmaker already in her debut? Totally. I think this is a really
3: strong start. I mean, the writing is so, again, so sharp and perceptive and generous. I think it really beautifully captures that And, you know, maybe it touched me because I'm in that stage of life at the moment when you're in your kind of late 20s, early 30s, people's kind of positions in life, those around you are in a state of flux or changing. You might feel a separation from someone close to you because they've settled down. Um, I thought it really articulated some of those. Yeah, that really that really difficult, challenging stage. And yeah, it's 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 such a shame that this is quite difficult to find. And I really hope that at some point someone kind of rescues it from. Yeah, as 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 Leila was saying off mic in in, indie movie jail, you know, and um, restores it because it's so it's so it's got such two such wonderful performances by Catherine Keener and, and the late. And Hesh, who are just so glowing and vibrant and funny and, and and have that, clearly have such a strong love for each other, but there's so much between them that's brittle and um, there's so much pain between them at the same time. And I just, yeah, I really, really
2: love this. And uh, it, it's such a strong start to her career. Yeah, that that dynamic between um, Keena and Hesh is so truthful to me. I've had many a sort of loving but tumultuous relationship with uh, with with close friends. And I like in a way that kind of as much as the men in this, you know, come up and they are a big part of it. And, you know, Amelia Catherine's character kind of has to face that she's overly defined herself in relationship to men. As a filmmaker, Nicole Holofsen is still much more interested in the complexities
0: of the women. Absolutely. Um, This film really, I think, sits in a kind of lineage, uh, perhaps begun by Claudia Wells' girlfriends, um, which this film clearly borrows, you know, a sort of main plot device from. Um, And you, you see that, you know, happen again throughout the sort of history of, romantic comedies up to something like bridesmaids you can you can you can see that that you know that lineage as I say and I think what's so yeah what's so special about when women make films about those kinds of issues is as we've been saying this perception to this yeah attention to detail and the perception of what it means to be a woman in that kind of circumstance and how your friendships with women are so intense and so personal uh, but also can be can be quite damaging, and I, I find that that yeah, whenever whenever a woman filmmaker kind of tackles this subject, rather than a, a man who might you know send the plot in some direction of like you know she'll be saved when she finds a man there's so much reckoning with that idea in in the films that these women make and so much kind of uh stripping away that that ridiculous notion to sort of lay bare what the actual truth of the situation is which is these are two friends who need to find each other and need time apart from each other and and you know that's the kind of the sort of back and forth that that they really need in it and ultimately has nothing to do with the men around them and yeah i i I mean I'd, i'd written some notes for for this film but i like my first thing just it's just so good like it's just such a lovely film and so I, as soon as i finished it i wanted to start it again i just felt like i i was another character in that world i knew those those women i wanted to be friends with them um i wanted all of Catherine Keener's outfits <laughs> i just love oh my gosh yes there are some beautiful outfits in in
3: this film and not to spoil anything but in the final sequence anne hesh just looks radiant so gorgeous
0: yeah i just it i just yeah i just wanted to be part of part of this world and and yeah i think that it really is a testament to to Senna's filmmaking and as i said with you have my feelings there's a sense of it being so lived in and so drawn from the real lives of, of real people um one of my favorite little things in the film is that uh Catherine keen amelia has a cat that she clearly used to share with um Anne hesh's character i think the idea is that they live together at one point and Anne Hesh, his character moved out to to be with her her partner, so they have this cat, and the cat is called big Jeans and I just think that 's like an incredible name for a cat first of all, but also somebody she knew must have had a cat with that name because it 's just too how could you make that up you know it 's just too perfect and kind of just really sweet um, and I think things like that you know they they really give this a sense of it, it being a real world and yeah it, it's just it 's just wonderful i really I really love this film. <laughs>
3: I thought it was so interesting that I, I read an interview that said that very, very brief, I mean, calling it a prologue it kind of overstates it, but that opening shot of the two of them as sort of maybe they're kind of eight or nine reading a um, some kind of like, I don't know, porn magazine or something about sex and they're giggling to each, to, with each other. And I read an interview, the Nicole of Senna really hated and still hates that little opening. And I totally understand why, because I think some 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 person in charge must have said you need to establish the depth of this friendship but it's not needed when 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 they clearly had a shared cat called big jeans and it's never explained <laughs> like a cat's called big jeans you just you just know that's a wonderful inside joke and it and it no one ever comments on the name of this cat and now all i want in my life is a cat named something as original and wonderful as big jeans Oh, my God,
2: Laura, are we going to split a cat? (laughs) (laughs) Joint custody, yes, please. I mean, it's kind of a bit of a darker thing to say, but, you know, Enough Said was, like, the final um, uh, James Gandolfini film that came out uh, just after he had passed. And, like, I kind of felt a similar kind of beautiful aching when I was watching Anne Heys this because I don't think she ever really got the career that she deserved because of, you know homophobia in the 90s right she's just radiant and natural she's delightful she's got whatever kind of it's like that raw ability that kind of can't be taught whatever it is that makes a star whatever it is that kind of James Gandolfini so special also applies to Anne Heche
0: definitely um I think you know the Amelia Catherine Keener's character is kind of centered a little more in this film but all that really serves to do is Whenever Anne Hesh is on the screen, you just think, "Wow, you know, she's really she's in no way like a side or minor character in this film, but you really get this sense of her depth and naturalism of performance." As you say, Layla, every line she she says, I just you know, it just felt like it was really coming from her as a person. This character is a real person, um, and yeah, it's just so. So beautiful and and totally you know I did also watch it thinking because i I was never that familiar with her her filmography to my sort of shame, and watching it, I definitely did have that feeling of, wow, this is somebody that i I need to go back and pay attention to and and and, and sort of you know experience her work because yeah, what clearly what a loss you know
2: mm, yeah, and I, I also kind of couldn't help but be reminded of Barbie, where it's kind of like the men want to build. The world where they like subjugate and humiliate women and then like you know you see something like a wonderful director like nicole Holofcener who just wants to kind of build these worlds in which we're not that interested in what the men are up to <laughs> like, yeah. like we're sure they're up to something and they'll like come in every now and again but like you know eh. I felt like it's
3: encapsulated by, you know, when they're driving to the spot where they might have this wedding and ton- uh, Todd Field driving, the two women says, do we have to listen to this vagina music for two hours? And they both just immediately
0: in, uni- in unison say yes. God, is that Todd Field? Yeah. yeah. It's wild. Oh. Yeah. And li- I must Jay say, Lee Schreiber is very good in this film as well. He's very funny as this kind of like like semi-himbo who like just has this like really great perm and wears uh like tight leather pants at one point which um it's very very funny but he he plays a good kind of foil to the more uh like serious um stuff that goes on with the the two friends which i enjoyed
2: oh well sounds like we are we're kind of like ratcheting up in a way like i think we we started with
0: a like and then a really like and now we're all just like fully in love with film club yeah this was a great choice I also think her film friends with money is very good um as another recommendation and of course enough said um yeah she's a great great filmmaker okay well I know what I'm doing tonight
2: Well, before I let you guys go, I've got to get a non-movie recommendation out of you both. So for those who foolishly are not just going to be binging Nicole Holofcener's filmography, <laughs> Laura, any ideas what else they should get up to?
3: Yeah, well, um, two quick ones, two books. I recently read Burn It Down by Maureen Ryan, which is this absolutely brilliant book about the Current state of things in in Hollywood, and and she's a renowned um, entertainment journalist. You may have seen this has been talked about quite a lot online, and various excerpts have been have been published. And uh, it's just so fascinating, and uh, and also has some brilliant ideas of what solutions could look like. I, I thought that was just so insightful. And I also recently read a wonderful book a memoir called A Flat Place by uh, Noreen Masood, which is all about this her experience growing up. In Pakistan, in this quite intense, abusive environment, and finding solace in the flat landscape where, near where she lived, um, and then finding kinship with flat land, landscapes back in the UK where she eventually studied, and it's just—it's just such a beautiful book that combines, you know, nature writing, explorations of culture and history, and post-colonialism, and a very personal narrative as well. And oh, I just adored it, and I'm recommending it to everyone.
2: But those, those both sound absolutely incredible. Okay, Friday's plans are cancelled. I can, I, if I could, do Barbie and Oppenheimer in a single day. I can do two books in a row. Caitlin,
0: what about you? What's your non-movie wreck? Well, I also have a book. Um, I I have it right next to me. Um, but I'm I'm currently reading it, and I I, I think it's it's really uh, yeah just really interesting. It's Mark Harris's biography of Mike Nichols, uh, the filmmaker. Um, this has been out for quite a while. I think it was you know a couple of years old at this point but um it's uh yeah it's i mean it's very it's very long i'll show you it's like a good 600 pager um maybe even more but it it just it it kind of navigates Nichols' life from his very early beginnings um basically fleeing nazi germany and arriving in the us and and sort of building this life as a kind of shy and bullied child and how that takes him through into his comedy career with elaine may and then into his filmmaking career later in life Um, and so it's very kind of chronological and there's a sense of like repetition to a lot of it which um, you know i guess is the case when people are just making movies over and over again in their life but there's something so fascinating about him as a figure and i think the book does a really good job of dealing with him as this kind of horrible person at the same time, as well as being this sort of genius filmmaker. Um, he wasn't always the nicest, you know, he had a lot of stuff going on in his life, but there were a lot of kind of situations where he did not behave the way that he should have done. And I think it's just a really insightful portrait of a of a director and how you kind of reach that point and what it means to be a director um, and how, you know, ego and, and sort of power can dominate people. Um, and yeah, just, it's just really fascinating. I've not finished it, but um, I'm like a good halfway through. And uh, yeah, I really recommend it. Uh, I mean, like, how, how bad
2: are we talking out of curiosity? Not like, like, not,
0: <laughs> not like he would, I don't think he would be, you know, cancelled today, so to speak. Um, but no he one just, is, really. So, well, yeah, I
2: mean, I'm about to go to he, a festival with Woody Allen and
0: Polanski films. No, it's cancelled. Yeah, no, nothing to that degree at all. More just kind of, you know, the somewhat of like a bullying attitude on set and and kind of, um, you know, he he had a lot of wives that he sort of just abandoned for, in favour of making films. And, um, you know, clearly a lot of a lot of difficulty uh reconciling his desire to make work and to be an artist with his personal relationships and and also how he you know dealt with actors and things like that so um yeah just a lot a lot more of that kind of thing rather than anything too too bad Mm, not to kind of tie everything
2: too close together but that sounds like quite a good pairing with you hurt my feelings like (laughs) let's explore the things that we do (laughs) that aren't great and also our messed up relationship with creating art but yeah that sounds absolutely wonderful thank you so much so if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, further reminders not to go into the ocean with The Meg 2. A journey through trauma leads to Paris memories. And for Film Club, the shark fan and the bad movie fan in me is thrilled. It's Deep Blue Sea. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week, were Laura Venning and Caitlin Quinlan. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus.